I'm Hannah. I'm Sheena. And I'm Lori. And this is Cemetery Row. Woohoo! Woo! Hurrah! Um, hey ladies. Hey! Hi! <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if we have any crazy news to share, any new um, updates about life. No, not really. We're just here. We're hanging in there. No, okay, so let me tell everybody about my, my turtle story I just told Yes, you. yes, <laughs> let's hear the turtle story. All right, so I'm driving over to my parents to go feed the horses yesterday. There's a long gravel driveway, so as I'm pulling in, there's a turtle in the middle of the driveway. I was like, okay, let me stop and check him out. He looks weird. He had a very smooth shell, and when I looked at his face, he had like, I think they call it a hog nose. Because yeah. it's like a, a long pointy nose. I'm like, well, fuck, I've never seen anything like this before. And so I like put a twig in front of his mouth to see if he was a snapping turtle. Um, and he didn't do anything. He was just chilling. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to touch you because I'm not going to move you in case you are a snapping turtle and you bite me. So I'm just going to drive over you carefully and just go about my business. And I was telling my dad about it when I got up there. And he's like, oh, I've never seen a turtle like that. And so we drove down to to check it out. And he said, that's a soft shell turtle. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, I think it's a soft shell. And he starts like rubbing its back. And that thing, y'all, listeners, I have never <laughs> seen an animal, much less a fucking turtle, move. Like his little legs were rotating 360 degrees <laughs> like and in the he, cartoons but it's just and yes, like he fucking flew off the driveway over the rocks and just was making it for the pond <laughs> like the look on my dad's face like we were like what the <laughs> fuck that thing is insane so we got up to the house and i start googling because i've never seen a turtle like that my dad's 70 and he said he's never seen a turtle like that in Mississippi and I googled it and it is a smooth soft shell turtle and it is the fastest turtle on land so there you go um there's lots of videos on YouTube listeners if you want to go see just how fucking fast this little guy was well he <laughs> I wasn't love little, it. He was massive but yeah I guess he was just having a sun break and then dad started touching him he was getting molested in an yeah in an <laughs> place, and he was like well fuck this I'm out and he oh my god airborne turtle and anyway our other update of the day is hannah has renamed all horses they are no longer horses they are pasture puppies pasture puppies yes because this morning i also uh one of my ponies was hung up in a fence so we were late to start recording today because i had to deal with cutting him out of the wire and he's okay i gave him some medicine for pain and put some liniment on it to help get circulation back but yeah. The farm yeah. animals are testing me this week. But yes, I'm telling puppies. you. I said something puppies. to Hannah about, oh, Lori sent a picture of her puppy. I almost said that. <laughs> and then I stopped. I'm like, that's not a puppy, Sheena. That's a, that's a, that's a horsey. Um, so they are now pasture puppies. Adjust yeah, accordingly. I love, mm-hmm. I love it. Um, well, I'm going to pimp out some tours if that's okay with everybody. Yes. Always. Um, as usual, I'm your typically Monday night tour guide um, for Backbeat Tours Memphis Walking Ghost Tour. Um, I just did two tours this weekend and had excellent groups both nights. Um, I don't care what that one guy said. That's not BS. 
that really did have great yeah chores. if you're rude to my girl again i'm coming up there with a crowbar so <laughs> my goodness just know what oh, no, you know what you're he's... getting yourself into i don't know if he was being rude or or being i don't know or just but being I, a man I, really, I don't know i just i enjoyed it i was like a these groups of people are awesome so um but yeah so that was friday and saturday night um and they were great so sometimes i do do the weekends but mostly on monday nights so please if you want to take a ghost tour with me go to baby tours and plan that but elmwood cemetery everyone's favorite cemetery um they have slowly kind of been pushing out their october tours which soul of the city is returning to the cemetery this fall it's october like 14th and 15th or something like that um i will be a tour guide at that event this year super excited about that as always i don't know if it's 14th and 15th or 13th and 14th but it's that weekend in october anyway um but if you want to take a tour with me in October at Elmwood Cemetery, I'm giving my True Crimes a Bygone Times tour on Saturday, October 7th at 2 p.m. Um, I'm then giving a tour called Scandals and Scoundrels on Friday, Ooh. October 27th at 5.30 p.m. I That is not a tour I wrote, but that is a tour. It's a hugely popular tour that the cemetery puts on pretty often. Um, they're doing two dates in October. They're doing October 21st, and October 27th. A different tour guide is giving the tour on the 21st. I'm giving the tour on the 27th. And then I'm giving True Crimes of Bygone Times again on Saturday, October 28th at 2 p.m. And then I'm giving my writer's tour, The Plot Thickens, on Saturday, November 4th at 10.30 a.m. And I am telling you, I'm having so much fun on that writer's tour. Um, I bet. I only gave it once, and then I've I've created like a online presentation version of it um and then i just spent like the entirety of one friday cleaning this one guy's stone because it's absolutely massive and i just love learning more about him so that's going to add to the tour too so anyway um yay dead people yay <laughs> so yeah come see me in memphis and absolutely it'll be awesome Anyway, our topic this week is explorers and adventurers and yes, people who left their hometowns to see the world and do some shit. Yes, woo, uh, Hannah, kick yep. us off. I'm starting us off with a double header, you guys. Yes. Um, after I changed my mind like yesterday at seven o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> that's how I roll. Um, so. Fun fact about me that I told Sheena and Sheena was surprised. So Lori's probably going to be surprised too. Uh, the movie I was most obsessed with as a smallish child was the 1980s classic, The Mountain Men. What? I've never even heard of that movie. I haven't it is, either, honestly. It is very problematic now, but at the time it was fantastic. And we watched it so many times. I absolutely love the movie, The Mountain Men. So, you know, it wasn't to me that you were obsessed with that movie. It was you just said when I was younger, I was obsessed with mountain men. And I, I was am. Like, I was 100% <laughs> obsessed with mountain men. So my biological father would often take us into like the mountains and the bluffs and the Ozarks and stuff. And it was so much fun. We absolutely loved it. So definitely like i think that's why i like the wendigo and the mothman because i yeah. too am, am for the hills <laughs> <laughs> so one of my favorites growing up was 
Grizzly Adams. Woo! Woo! So, yes. Grizzly Adams was born John Boyden Adams to Eliza Adams and Sybil Capen on October 22nd, 1812 in Medway, Massachusetts. He was a murmur. Blah. Mermaid? <laughs> yes. He was a Mermaid. member yes, of the Adams family of New England that included um, Gomez. Lots of great <laughs> people. His great 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 so four greats grandfather henry adams uh immigrated to england in 1632 and established the adams family in america and if you're wondering (laughs) it includes samuel adams john adams and john quincy adams so they're cousins yes those adams i just assumed it was gomez and mortician i wish but it was it was the famous ones um and so grizzly was born in a suburb of boston that was basically all the the adams family if you will (laughs) um and president john adams lived just kind of a short buggy ride away from him so he grew up and kind of a you know important family and very big family so he didn't really as was kind of the time in that era didn't really have like an early childhood education you just kind of learned to read and write and that was it yeah um but at the age of 14 he became an apprentice at a cobbler's so footwear manufacturing which it's pretty good business to be in yes um so at 21, he worked there until 21, and then he decided he wanted to go out adventuring. And I think everyone at 21 hits a point where we're like, I want to go do something stupid. And so <laughs> he he decided to go do that. God love him for it. Uh, he signed on with a company of showmen as a zoological collector. Um, he hunted and captured wild animals in the roughest parts of Maine, Vermont, and New Hampshire. Um, His hunting and trapping career, however, ended abruptly when he received severe back and spine injuries from, does anyone want to guess? A bear. A Bengal tiger. What the fuck? Where was he doing these expeditions? I almost said alligator, and I'm like, no, he's up north. I don't have anything (laughs) spicy like alligators up there. Well, the bear, and I was like, bear, yes, okay, that's it. Okay. No, Bengal tiger. Um, He was trying to train it for the showman that he worked for. Um. And so he he got quite an injury from that. He didn't want to be a burden on his family. So he recuperated for a year and then went back to shoemaking in Boston. So, you know, good for you. Um, (laughs) He married Silena Drury and they had three children, Arabella, Arethusa, and Seymour. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Arethusa is such a great name too. It is. It is. Those are those are some high quality names. I mean, I'm sure yeah. I can't talk, but right. high quality names. So he starts, you know, he's doing his his shoe cobbler. He's the shoemaker. And after about 13 years in 1849, we've got the height of the California gold rush. He invested his life savings of more than six thousand dollars to buy a whole supply of shoes to send to st louis and then so they could purchase them in st louis and take them with them you know on the gold rush um so he intended to sell them to great profit for the 49ers that's what they were called because it's 1849 um that's why the football team is called what it is passing through st louis 
However, tragedy struck. His entire investment was lost in a St. Louis war fire. Oh, no. And also, insult to injury, his father had also invested quite a bit of money into the plan. And so he committed suicide shortly thereafter. Oh, no. So he got a one-two punch. So been there. Yeah. Yeah, Been there. You've, you you have a unique perspective on that. Jeez, um, I mean, Louise, that is so, awful. Yeah, so he felt like he had nothing to lose. He had a little bit of gold fever and a yearning for adventure. So he decided to, I'm going to go out to California, which, <laughs> understandable impulse after something like that. Do it. And he figured even if he didn't strike gold he could support himself by hunting and trapping in kind of the great wilderness that was out west um he tried his luck at mining he hunted game to sell to miners trading and he did some ranching and farming at times he was rich and just as quickly broke which ain't we all been there yes (laughs) um late in 1852 having lost his ranch outside of stockton california to the bank (laughs) whoops He took the few items he could salvage and headed into the Sierra Nevada mountains to get away from it all, which, hey, man, who among us? I don't don't blame you. (laughs) Um, And just for reference, the Sierra Nevadas is where the Donner Party had its (laughs) trouble. Um, So he was he was a hard ass dude. Like he could take care of himself Um, with the help of the local Miwok Indians. He built himself a cabin and stable and spent the winter alone in the Sierras. He was an expert hunter, and he was trained in shoemaking and leather craft, so he was able to fashion buckskin clothing and moccasins, which is what he wore for the rest of his life. Cool. Um, he also made his own harnesses, saddles, and snowshoes. So he was he did. a handy fucking dude. Um, and like, and then I go on TikTok, and people can't, men can't load the dishwasher. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Grizzly Adams was looking at you in shame. <laughs> In 1853, he made a hunting and trapping expedition about 1,200 miles from his base camp in California to what was then called the Eastern Washington Territory and is now Western Montana. While he was there, he caught a yearling female grizzly that he named Lady Washington. (laughs) Even though she was already a year old and very wild, he managed to tame her and taught her to follow him without any leashes or restraints. Later, she learned how to carry a pack and pull a loaded uh, sled. They even cuddled to keep warm in freezing conditions. Oh, that is and adorable. And eventually, she would allow John to ride on her back. Oh, bless her heart. Lady Washington has some adventures, too. Don't you, don't you worry. In 1854, Adams retrieved a pair of two-week-old grizzly cubs from the den of the mother. So he was a kidnapper, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, Near Yosemite Valley, he named one Benjamin Franklin. (laughs) Benjamin Franklin saved John's life a year later in 1855 when a mother grizzly attacked Adams. Uh Uh-oh. This head injury, we'll come back to it. It It wasn't great and would be the thing that ultimately led to his demise but him and ben came out of it you know okay yeah in the summer of 1854 john traveled to the rocky mountains to hunt and collect more live animals during this expedition lady washington had an amorous encounter with a rocky mountain grizzly oh my lady washington got her freak on 
<laughs> this resulted in a male cub that was born the next year when she was with Adams in Coral Hollow on the eastern side of California. Adam christened her, christened her cub General Fremont in order of John C. Fremont, who I do not know who that is, but he has a bear named in his honor. I, I love anyone who names animals after people. I know, because as somebody whose cats are all named people names, I love yeah. it. Um, so in the winter of 1854, he captured yet another California grizzly and the largest cage trap he had ever constructed. He named him Samson. When the bear was later weighed on a hay scale, it tipped the beam at 1500 pounds. One of the largest grizzlies ever captured alive. Goodness. So our boy Grizzly Adams was not fucking around. He was... (laughs) He had his shit down. So during 1855, Adams and they were doing their hunting, trapping along the California coast. He journeyed to the Kern River Mines. If you're from California, you probably know where all this is. I do not. (laughs) Um, And then he proceeded southward to Tachapi and Tejon Pass. Due to the interest of the curious people of the group he met, John set up impromptu shows of his bears and other animals he had collected on his summer excursion. I mean, so think about it. You're out in the, you know, boonies. It's the 1800s. You've never seen a fucking, I don't know, bear or whatever else. And here's this guy (laughs) with a whole bunch of them. It's like, what the hell is that? In 1856, John retrieved all of his animals from Howard's Ranch near Stockton, California, where he had left them to be cared for while he was out gallivanting. He then opened the Mountaineer Museum in a basement on Clay Street in San Francisco. Adams moved his menagerie and museum, now called the Pacific Museum, to a better location. The new building could accommodate larger audiences and house more animals and displays. In January 1858, tragedy struck when noble Ben, Benjamin Franklin, John's favorite grizzly, died of an illness. They don't know what the illness was, and John, who had worked with these bears for so long, had tried all of his different remedies, and nothing could really, you know escape so that means ben was about four so i don't know what the lifespan of grizzly is but i feel like that's too young yeah um adams was absolutely devastated at the loss so i mean these weren't just like critters to him these were like he loved these creatures Um, but he continued to do his shows he would continually add more animals and other attractions and in 1859 once again, the bank comes calling, and he lost his museum to creditors. <laughs> However, he was able to save most of his animals, and he relocated temporarily. His health was starting to go. We're going to talk again about that head wound he took. Um, and he knew his life would soon end. Since he had been away from his wife in Massachusetts for more than a decade, he wanted to earn enough before he died to leave her comfortable. Um, He made arrangements to relocate his menagerie and collections in New York to try to join P.T. Barnum, who one day I will cover because he's fucking fascinating. Um, On January 7th, 1860, uh, Adams and his menagerie departed from San Francisco on a clipper ship uh, to New York City that would go down Cape Horn. So the tip of South America and would take three and a half 
months. Think about how it does not take that long anymore. <laughs> no. In New York City, Grab uh, Grizzly Adams joined with Barnum to perform his California menagerie in a canvas tent for six weeks. His health continued to decline, and after a doctor told him he better settle his affairs, I love how they used to tell you that shit back in the I day. Know. They're like, get your shit together. You're on the way out. Yeah. Adams decided he would sell his menagerie to Barnum. However, disregarding his doctor's prognosis, he managed to persuade Barnum to agree to let him perform with his animals for another 10 weeks for a $500 bonus. Adams was able to hold out for the full contract, though at the end, he could barely walk on stage. Oh, man. During his previous attack with Ben from a mother grizzly, his scalp had been dislodged. And he had been left with a silver dollar-sized impression in his skull just above his forehead. Please, for the love of God, don't ever let my scalp get dislodged. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's like in Mm -hmm. Evil Dead Rises, the new Evil Dead movie. There's Mm -hmm. like a scalping scene at the very end. And I'm like, yes, there is. Yes, that disturbed me greatly. My soul almost let, like, of all the gore that happened in that movie, that was the one that, like, yes. No, no, no. Yes. My soul just left me. I was like, oh, that left an impression. I would rather watch them go into the wood chipper again. I know. (laughs) The wood chipper was nothing. I'm like, I just can't. Same. Yeah. So he had a dollar sized, uh, silver dollar sized impression in his skull just above the forehead. So I'm guessing like right along his hairline. Yeah. Adams had made pets of several grizzlies and often wrestled with them while training and in exhibitions, which is something you definitely want to do with a hole in your head. Yeah. Um, during one such bout, his most delinquent grizzly, General Fremont, struck Adams in the head and reopened the wound. Oh. It was subsequently re-injured several times, eventually leaving Adam's brain tissue exposed. What? What? So what? he was he was doing a Phineas. Um, yeah, yeah, I was about yeah. to say. <laughs> Lots of brains poking out. The damage was further exacerbated because why would no. that stop him? No. Well, Adams was on tour with a circus in New England during the summer of 1860 when a monkey who was attempting to train bit into the wounds. <laughs> Hannah. <laughs> Hannah. Shit you not. I shit you not. Yes. I, I have a new nightmare. <laughs> Getting bit on the head by a monkey. Yeah, when my brain's exposed, yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, like, if, if it wanted to nibble and, and everything's fine, fine, whatever. Do not if, bite my head nibble, <laughs> I don't care if the monkey nibbles on my head. Like, if so long as everything is intact. But if nothing up there is intact and my brain is just hanging out all like, what is it, Ray Liotta? At the yes. Of, Hannibal. What, what, Hannibal. Yeah, yes. no, no, I don't want nothing you. feasting mm-hmm. on that. Yeah, no. no, and a monkey. Of all, his first injury was a Bengal tiger, and now it's a monkey. <gasps> after oh, after more than four months of performing with his California menagerie, complications from the injury led to Adams being unable yeah. to continue the show. I bet. I'm not shocked by that. So after he completed his contract with PT Barnum, he retired to Neponset, Massachusetts, where he died of an illness probably meningitis which i imagine yeah, yeah the fluid it. in your spines probably got a pretty gnarly infection by now <laughs> if God, your brain's just so been horrible. out there that is such a horrible way to go too Ugh. meningitis is no joke yeah and he passed away five days after arriving at the home of his wife and daughter on october 25th uh 1860 he was 48 
Upon hearing of Adam's death, Barnum was deeply grieved. They were apparently pretty good friends. Um, And from the proceeds of the sale of the menagerie and his bonus, he did, in fact, leave a comfortable sum for his wife. Uh, Adams was interred at the Bay Path Cemetery in Charlton, Massachusetts. He has a very lovely stone. Um, It is believed P.T. Barnum commissioned the creation of his tombstone. Also buried nearby are his mother, father, a sister, his wife, his son, and one of his two daughters. The grave is marked by a five marked with a five foot tall by two foot wide stone which at its top is a carved effigy of the hunter walking next to his tamed grizzly bear with the inscription john adams aged 48 died october 25th 1860 and the following lines and silent now the hunter lays sleep on brave tenant of the wild great nature owns her simple child and nature's god to whom alone the secret of the heart is known and silence whispers that his work is done oh i love that Mm -hmm. i know so another part of his legacy besides just being the motherfucking grizzly adams um and a lot of like menageries and animal shows that existed past his his death and you know his menagerie ending was the state flag of california (laughs) The state flag of California has the figure of a grizzly bear on it. The original flag was designed in or flag design was finalized in 1953 when a watercolor drawing of one of Grizzly Adams bears by Charles Nall from 1858 was selected to be used as the model for the flag design. That's cool. I didn't know that. So, yeah. Um, And so here's another one who is quite related to Mr. Grizzly Adams um, and you have undoubtedly seen this headstone on the internet. Um, it comes around every now and then. And the headstone is of somebody named James T. Whitehead. And his tombstone reads, The noted hunter, James T. Whitehead, born 1819, died September 25th, 1905, killed 99 bears. We oh, hope yeah. he has gone to rest. Yeah, <laughs> I have seen that one. Well, here's a little bit about Mr. James Tiger Whitehead. Tiger, aptly named because he had once had to hunt and kill a tiger that escaped from a traveling circus near Bristol, Tennessee. As you do. As one mm-hmm. does. Oh, there are so many tigers in the 1800s. It's really shocking. Um, he is said to have killed 99 black bears during his lifetime. According to legend, when Tiger became sick, some of his friends met in the mountains and trapped a bear cub. And he pulled a Teddy Roosevelt and said, absolutely, I will not kill because this is not in the wild. They wanted to give him his 100th bear before he died. And he said, no, it's not wild and running free and I can't kill it. So the bear was released back into the hills and he passed into myth. One of Tiger's most exciting adventures also almost uh, killed him. Um, (laughs) As we have learned, according to the tiger, according to the story, Tiger shot a black bear and only wounded the animals. And what did we know about wounded bears? You're fucked. Yes. The bear charged at him, ready to pounce, and Tiger's rifle, which he had called Tick Licker. <laughs> Sorry. What? Yep. Yep. I don't, I, I'm sure it's some 1800s stuff that I just don't understand. Yeah. Was a muzzle loading rifle. He did not have time to shoot, to reload and shoot the bear. Instead, Tiger waited until the bear was within a few feet and he shoved it into his mouth um, and then killed the bear with a knife. So. From that day on, the rifle bore the teeth marks of the bear that almost ended his life. So he 
shoved the rifle into the mouth of the bear or he put the to bear distract him no oh. he put the so the bears like distracted chomping down on the rifle and then Psh! jeez louise okay tough old dude yeah he was like 86 when he died it's fucking insane yeah yeah grizzly adams was young when he died yeah he was 48 yeah how young he was yeah, wow. Johnny Cash would later write the song The Legend of Tiger Whitehead, which includes the lyric at night when the wind howls crossed eastern hills of Tennessee, an old gray-headed ghost running through the mountains there. It's Tiger Whitehead after his 100th bear. Aww. His wife Sally's tombstone is equally cool. They are buried next to each other. Etched into her tombstones are the words, not only a mother to the human race, but to all animal kind, as she gave nurse to one fawn and two cubs, sorry, according to what? gave nurse, <laughs> she raised, she raised, okay. she did not okay. breastfeed wild Thank animals. You. So Thank far you. as I know, I don't know what goes on in Tennessee. Thank you. Um, according to legend, Sally adopted two orphan bear cubs and a fawn and raised them until they could take care of themselves. Oh, yeah, well, that's cool. Mountain people. Yes. So we're going to go from the mountains. Oh, go ahead, Sheena. I was just going to say, those were good stories. Thank you, girl. So we're going to go from the mountains to the South Pole. Ooh. Because something just about crazy white men and snow just is so (laughs) fascinating. Because, you know, Everest, we get summit fever. And now we're going to cover pole fever. <laughs> Never mind. I can't. I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember what the name is they called it. But anyway, so today I'm going to be talking about one Robert Falcon Scott. That is his middle name. name. That is that quite is the middle name. Yes. Like if you're going to be an explorer, your nickname or your middle name needs to be something. Oh dramatic, hell yeah! Like Falcon. Yes. And I'm going to apologize in advance. I forgot to do the um, to to look up the pronunciations of some of these last names so i'm gonna butcher them and i apologize (laughs) in advance i'm gonna do my best so robert falcon scott was born on june 6th 1868 he was the third of six children and the oldest son of john and hannah scott of plymouth england hell yeah yeah hannah (laughs) the family was well off john had inherited a brewery from his father Hell yeah. Um, and I guess it was tradition in the family that the sons, the firstborn sons, go into the military uh, because Robert and his brother Archie would follow into their grandfather and uncle's footsteps by enlisting in the armed forces. Robert's career began in 1881 at the age of 13. Oh, Ooh. Jesus. The next 10 years seemed to go pretty normal. Um, until 1894, when the Scott family fell into financial hardships, John had sold the brewery and made some bad investment decisions, which, you know, yeah, I'm not surpri- surprised. Hail as uh, old as time. Yes. And the family was completely broke. He had to take a job as a brewery manager to support his remaining family, um, but died three years later of a heart attack. So this left both Robert and Archie responsible for providing for their widowed mother and uh, their two unmarried sisters. Mm. Uh, Then 
1898, Archie died after contracting typhoid fever, which Oof. left sole responsibility of the family on Robert's shoulders. That's As an unwed sister, I wish have somebody having to take care of you. That would have been nice. But here yeah. I am having to take care of myself. Sucks. Yes, it's no okay. fun. Yeah. <laughs> so by all accounts, he was, you know, he was a go-getter. Uh, so when he learned of a planned expedition to Antarctica, he knew this was the opportunity to make a name for himself as a leader and an explorer. I he love bought- that, like, financial ruin is like, fuck it. <laughs> Let's <Yeah>. go. Yeah. <laughs> he volunteered to lead the expedition, which was known as the Discovery Expedition. Ooh. It set sail in August of 1901. And prior to the departure, the ship was visited by King Edward VII who awarded Scott the distinction of fourth-class member of the Royal Victorian Order as a gift. Okay. There you go, dude. (laughs) The expedition had its successes and failures. Dogs died in the first season. Men suffered from scurvy and other ailments. Uh, But they did discover, no pun intended, uh, the Polar Plateau, which is where the South Pole is located. Now, they didn't find that they didn't get to the South Pole. They just found where it was. Okay. Uh, So they returned in September of 1904. Scott became a national hero. He got awards, accolades. He was promoted to captain. And then King Edward, who was so happy with the results of the expedition, granted him the title of commander of the Royal Victorian Order. Right. So he just continued doing what you do being famous and being in the Navy or whatnot. And then in 1907, he met a lady named Kathleen Bruce at a luncheon. She was a sculptor and socialite whose group, you're going to love this one, Hannah. Her group of friends included Pablo Picasso and Aleister Crowley. Yes. (laughs) I love this bitch. Uh, Their whirlwind courtship had its hiccups. He was often at sea doing you know, see stuff cap- captain see stuff, shit yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she had a bunch of suitors because she did of course she did she's uh, cool yeah that was the it- cool thing about crowley's group is it was like a bunch of ugly nerds and just like the hottest coolest chicks you've ever met in your life <laughs> yeah uh but eventually they made it work and they got married on september 2nd 1908 they had a son peter markham scott who would go on to found the Worldwide Fund for Nature, which is an organization dedicated to wilderness preservation and reducing the impact of people on the environment. And it's still around today. Yeah. And in the U.S. and Canada, it's known as the World Wildlife Fund. So those commercials you see with with a little panda. So he was one of the founders of that organization. So prior to his marriage, he had been eyeing a return to Antarctica and his dream of becoming the first man to set foot on the South Pole. He was pissed to learn that Ernest Shackleton, who I was initially going to talk about his failed expedition because there were, the carpenter on that trip was awesome. Hmm. Uh, but Ernest Shackleton is a douche canoe. Yeah. So <laughs> I didn't really want to talk about him. So Shackleton was a fellow explorer who had been a part of the discovery journey, was going to make his own plans to make it to the South Pole. But his voyage was unsuccessful, and that kind of lit a fire under Scott to get his shit together and get back to Antarctica. 
1910, he was given command of the British Antarctic Expedition 1910, which would become known as the Terra Nova Expedition, named after the ship that would carry them there. I like that name. Um, Mm -hmm. They set sail from South Wales on June 15th, 1910. But upon arriving in Australia that October, he learned that he would not be alone in his quest to reach the uh, South Pole. Okay, so this is the name I'm going to butcher. Roald Amundsen. Amundsen. Okay. A Norwegian explorer. Yeah, that sounds Norwegian. He had his sight set on the North Pole. In fact, he was the first person that successfully navigated the Northwest Passage and was on his way to achieving the goal of finding the North Pole. Uh, But then news broke that these two explorers, Robert Perry and Frederick Cook, had both successfully led expeditions to the North Pole. Um, And each of these two men were backed by different newspapers, like Mm. backing their claim. There was no substantiation to this. They lied, basically, just like Amerigo Vespucci Uh lied about making it to America. And so the luster kind of wore off for Amundsen. He was like, well, fuck it. But he knew (laughs) that. So he was Norwegian and Norway's biggest ally in their fight for independence uh, was Great Britain. And their own queen, Maud, was a uh, granddaughter of Queen Victoria. So he couldn't oh, go yeah. to his government and say, hey, I want to go to Antarctica because they would say no because Great Britain's trying to go to Antarctica. Right. So he's like, okay, we're going to go to the North Pole. That's my goal. And so he got approval and went. And he was supposed to pick up some scientists in uh, San Francisco. But after they took off, he's, he's like, he sent a message to San Francisco. It's like, yeah, don't be waiting around for me. We're going south. Yeah, um, clever. Yes. So the ship was called the Fram. And then he also sent a telegram to Australia so that when Scott arrived, he would have it. And it read, beg leave to inform Fram headed south. <laughs> so he's like, guess what, bitch? I'm going to. He hid the ball. I love it. Yeah. Yes. So Scott was shocked. Because Emmonson's sole purpose was going to be, I'm going to the South Pole. Like that, there was no scientific expeditions yeah. going on. It was, we're getting to the South Pole. Um, Scott's expedition was kind of testing the waters. They were going to look at different things and they were looking at experimental, experimental transportation. They had motor sledges and ponies that they Ooh. were taking in addition to sled dogs and Gear Clover, who is the director of the Fram Museum in Oslo, said, quote, Amundsen had a tremendous reputation. He was a meticulous planner, easily the best organized explorer of his generation. It was not good news for Scott. <laughs> because one of the things that has come up uh, about this expedition is it was not very well organized, um, which I, I don't. I don't know. I feel like it was pretty organized, but I'm not a scientist or an explorer. So, uh, so two days after their final stop in New Zealand, the Terra Nova hit a major storm. The ship was overloaded and began taking on water. And one sailor recalled, quote, everybody saturated some waist deep on the floor of the engine room, oil and coal dust mixing with the water and making everyone filthy. Some men clinging to the iron ladder way and passing full buckets long after their muscles had ceased to work naturally, their grit and spirit keeping them going. Damn. 
Somehow the ship survived the storm. Two of the 17 ponies had died. Two more were seriously injured and one of the sled dogs had drowned. Oh, that aside, their spirits begin to improve. And Scott would write in his journal, quote, the northern sky was gloriously rosy and reflected the calm sea between the ice, which varied from burnished copper to salmon pink. Ooh, that sounds pretty. Mm -hmm. Yes. So they finally. Oh, my dates are fucked up here. (laughs) They finally reached Ross Island, their intended destination on January 2nd, 2011. No, that was a long Time ass travelers. trip. <laughs> Time 1911. Uh, so they had a prefabricated hut that they set up, and two thirds of it went Mart. to labs and for the officers and scientists. And then the rest was given to the, uh, you know, other people who were on that expedition. Once base camp was set up, Ross began planning his trek to the pole. The journey to the pole was estimated to take about 150 days. So they were going to have to go out and set up these depots and just dump a bunch of supplies. And this was a clusterfuck. The motorized <laughs> sledges died on the first day. The, oh, pony, the ponies were ill-suited to the terrain. Uh, they managed to get the depots set up, but their final one, which was named One Ton because of the one ton of supplies that had to be dropped, oh, was nearly 40 miles short of its intended location. Oh, no. Damn. So those poor that, horses are like, where the I fuck know. have you taken us? Yes. Yeah. Jesus. Um, so they, it was really just a waiting game after that because uh, what is traditionally summer for us is winter in Antarctica. Yeah. yeah. And so basically they just had to wait for the weather to subside to go. And he knew time wasn't on his side. Uh, Amundsen team <laughs> included fit men and sled dogs. And would be able to set out much earlier because of where they had landed. So while they waited, they continued to do scientific research. Um, And then from June to July of 1911, a team of four men took a 70-mile journey during the middle of winter to retrieve emperor penguin eggs. Oh, wow. (laughs) Because, of course, if emperor penguins are going to do anything, they're going to lay their eggs in the middle of the fucking winter. Yeah, they don't fuck around. They suffered through dangerous sledding conditions and temperatures that dropped to negative 76 degrees Fahrenheit. No, Jesus, absolutely not. And I'm I'm in Chicago and I'm like, eh, no, no. So it was believed that these eggs were going to be huge to scientific research that uh, by studying the embryonic development of these eggs, scientists would be able to better understand how birds and reptiles are related. Okay. They collected six eggs they lost three but they got back three eggs okay by the time those eggs got back to great britain the scientists they were intended for had died oh no (laughs) and so they just kind of got passed around for the next 20 or 30 years until 1934 when zoologist cw parsons said quote they did not greatly add to our understanding of penguin embryology. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, at that point, eggs. lie to me and just be like, yes, this, this yeah, is the greatest so thing much. that ever happened. Yes. Thank you for risking life and limb to, to bring us these eggs. <laughs> Bless. Uh, so November 1st, 1911. The day arrived. It was later in the season because Scott was hoping that the weather would improve and his ponies would be able to make it. Uh, They set out with several dog teams and 10 ponies beginning their trek to the South Pole. 
By early December, the weather had gotten worse, and the last of the ponies were shot and the <gasps> meat stored Aww. away for the men and the dogs. Oh, I mean, yeah. Sadly, you do what you got to do. It happens. Um, on December 10th, the dog teams were sent back to base, sent back to base, and the 12 remaining men continued on. Uh, in late December, Scott sent back a team of four men, and then on January 4th, he sent back an additional three men. So there were five left. It was Scott, a man named Henry Bertie Bowers, who was a short, hardworking Scotsman. Edgar Evans, a petty officer who had been on the Discovery mission and who was a little chunky. They Love kept it. calling him beefy. <gasps> Love uh, it. Edward Wilson, who was the chief scientific officer and had been the one resp- who led the mission to get the Emperor Penguin eggs. And Captain Lawrence Oates, whose nickname was the soldier, and he was the primary caretaker of the ponies uh, during this expedition. So when they got there, setting them up and and all of that. The the five men pushed forward the worsening weather with rapidly depleting supplies. Um, Then on January 16th, Bowers noticed something fluttering on the horizon. When they came across ski and dog tracks, they realized they were at the South Pole and they had been beaten by (gasps) Anderson. Oh, no. <laughs> Damn it. A tent near included a few leftover items, including a note Admundsen had written to the King of Norway. And to add insult to injury, he left a note for Scott asking if he would mind delivering the note to the king. Oh, like, damn. I, I kind of love that, though. I love like, it, too. What a that is bit. so patty. Yes. Uh, Scott team took pictures because hey we gotta prove we made it absolutely Uh, and they they did scientific measurements but they were all pretty disappointed and i the picture i think i did include it because i have like so many pictures uh for this um they look pissed (laughs) (laughs) i imagine they were a little salty yes so in his journal scott wrote Quote, well, we have turned our back now on the goal of our ambition with sore feelings and must face 800 miles of solid dragging and goodbye oh. to most of the daydreams. Oh, bless his heart. So, yeah, a couple of days after they made it to the pole, they began their trek back to base camp. The trip was slow. They, it had been weeks since they finished off the pony meat. They had no vitamin C uh, and they were slowly starving Not to good. death because, again, normally he, it would have been four men once he set everybody back, but he added the additional fifth man. So that kind of fucked things up for him. Yeah. They suffered from injuries that were slow to heal. Evan's fingers were in bad shape from frostbite and he had mm. accidentally stabbed himself with a knife and it wasn't healing. Ew. His condition continued to deteriorate and he died on the evening of February 17th, most likely from brain damage he had received from a bad fall that had been exacerbated by frostbite, scurvy, dehydration, and the high altitude. Be careful with these head wounds, guys. I know. Yes. So the next member of the team to die was Lawrence Oates. Frostbite had taken over his extremities, and it had gotten so bad that he cut a hole in his reindeer skin sleeping bag so that he could just stick his leg out and let it freeze. Oh, my God. So bad. Oh, bless him. No, well, yeah, no. because as your nerves start to thaw, all those yeah. nerve endings just go. Yeah. And it. I, I don't blame him, but geez. he's like, no, nope, I don't want this. 
he tried to convince Scott to leave him. He's like, look, I'm not going to make it. You got to go. Yeah. Scott wouldn't do it. And then on March 16th, Oates was like, well, okay, I'm going to do it. And he left the tent and walked out to the blizzard to his death. Mm. So Scott, Bowers, and Wilson continued their journey. But by March 22nd, they knew the end was near. They were 13 miles from the next depot and only had enough food to last them two more days. Then a blizzard hit, leaving them unable to move on even if they wanted to. Yeah. So they spent the next few days or their remaining time writing letters to family members. Wilson wrote to his wife, Oriana, quote, we have struggled to the end and have nothing to regret. Mm-hmm. Bowers. Touche. Yeah. Bowers wrote a comforting message to his mother, quote, for me, the end was peaceful as it is only sleep in the cold. Aww. Aww. And so Scott, it's believed that Scott was ultimately the last to succumb. He wrote many letters to the financial supporters of the mission, as well as his family. He, you know, a lot of people had said he was too old. I think he was like 42. He's like, no, I wasn't too old to do this. I was, you know, the young men died before I did, you know, basically. Yeah. Um, He did write a message to the public that read, quote, had we lived, I should have had a tale to tell of the hardihood, endurance, and courage of my companions, which would have stirred the heart of every Englishman. Oh. His final letter, which was dated March 29th, read, quote, it seems a pity, but I do not think I can write more. R. Scott, for God's sake, look after our people. Oh. Now, that last message was a specific request for his family, because as I mentioned earlier, he was the sole provider for his wife and son, but he Mm -hmm. also was responsible for his mother and sisters, and he didn't want them to be left destitute. Right. So back to back at base camp, Edward Atkinson had been left in charge and he had a dilemma. So another team of scientists that had been on this expedition had gone to explore the northern coast of Antarctica, but hadn't returned yet. So should he set out in search of them? Because he he knew that they could have possibly survived or locate Scott, who he knew was dead. I mean, it was pretty obvious that they were no longer living. So he decided to take a vote of all the men at base camp, all voted except for one who abstained, and every single person voted to go after Scott's remains. No. None of them wanted to go for the guys up north. They had become trapped by winter, but they survived in an ice cave and and on blubber, and they all made it out. And so Atkinson was like, it's a good thing they did, because we would have been really in trouble if they hadn't survived yeah um so they set out on october 14th and on the morning of november 12th they spotted the top of the tent poking out of the snow and the bodies of scott wilson and bowers uh wilson and bowers looked pretty peaceful scott looked pissed (laughs) which i bet i don't blame him no and so they broke down uh the tent over the bodies and they built a snow cairn and they marked the the grave with a cross uh, the bodies of Oates and Evans, to, to the best that I could find, were never found, but they did find some of Oates' belongings. And so near near the location they presumed he had died, they erected a sn- second snow cairn and a cross that reads, quote, Hereabouts died a very gallant gentleman, Captain L.E.G. Oates of the Inniskilling Dragoons. I don't know what that is. I didn't look that up. In March 1912, returning from the pole, he walked willingly to his death in a blizzard to try and save his comrades, beset by hardships. And this is also, like, there's a a plaque of this somewhere else, too. 
So news of Scott's death did not reach Britain until February of 1913. When the surviving members of the expedition arrived, they were shocked to see that flags were at half-mast and Great Britain was mourning the loss. A state service was held for Scott and King George V actually attended this, oh. uh, which was like unheard of. Yeah. And yes, the family of the men who died were taken care of. A whopping 75,000 pounds was raised, which is the equivalent of 8 million pounds today. Oh, wow. Damn. But sadly, it was not distributed evenly. Scott's Uh-oh. family received the equivalent of about 2 million pounds. Wilson's widow received... 895,000 pounds. Bower's mother received 474,000 pounds. And Edgar Evans's widow, children, and mother received 158,000 pounds. Hmm. And that's Damn. all adjusted for inflation. Yeah. Um, so sadly, his legacy would go on to be marred by writers that said he was incompetent. And yes, he made mistakes. He was rushing into something that he probably should have prepared a little better for. But he was not incompetent. And he was not a fool. Um, And people said, you know, the weather that season had a lot to do with it. It was it was a very bad summer. Um, And but in fact, fossils he collected shortly before his death helped prove the Pangea theory as fossils of ferns were found uh, in Antarctica that grew on different uh, like in South America and and different places. So that proved that at one point. Antarctica had been part of yeah. a greater continent. Hmm. So more than 30 monuments were set out, set up throughout Great Britain over the course of the next 12 years, including a statue at Scott's base in New Zealand that was sculpted by his wife, Kathleen, because as Aww. I mentioned, she was an artist. Uh, sadly, the final resting place of Scott Wilson and Bowers has long since disappeared. According to Le- Heather Lane, who is the librarian at the Scott Polar Research Institute Museum in Cambridge, quote, the Karen with their bodies is still out there on the barrier, deeply buried under accumulated snow, heading slowly towards the Southern Ocean as the ice fields move toward the sea, where they mm-hmm. will eventually receive a marine committal. Yeah. Oh, so they were basically like put out on an ice floe. Yeah, basically. They'll, they'll eventually that will, as... it'll melt and yeah they'll they'll go out to sea and so that is the very sad story of um robert falcon scott and i have lots of i was able to find a picture because there were a lot of photographs because again this was this wasn't just like amundsen was great and all but he all he was trying to do was get to the pole this was they were trying to do science they were doing multiple things and so they were testing the ponies they were testing how do motor sledges do and it taught people a lot for the next expeditions on how to prepare and there were a ton of pictures so i was able to get a picture of each of the the men that died um and then you know just yeah it was it was neat and i i I am including there's so many uh monuments that the only one i'm including is the one uh that kathleen sculpted because i think that one's more special than the others absolutely so yeah that's uh these these yeah the one day i will get back to talk about the um the uh expedition the shackleton expedition um and the um the carpenter and the cat because that's a a fun story but this one it's just again the their final resting place being in sorry my microphone just dropped being in antarctica and how they had to like kind of have a makeshift grave i thought Mm -hmm. was was interesting for this particular um i love it 
Yeah. Oh my goodness. Sorry. My booty's numb in this closet. Sorry. (laughs) I'm adjusting. All right, Sheena. All right. I'm rounding us out. The story has it all. A famous gay man from Memphis. Yes. Getting lost at sea and a house that is both famous and haunted. Love it. Everything we love. I know. So picture it. Richard Halliburton was born on January 9th, 1900 in Brownsville, Tennessee. Brownsville, Tennessee is like two counties over. Uh, His January 9th birthday makes him a Capricorn. Yes, before you ask, he is a member of the famed Halliburton family. I was about to ask. Halliburton Company. If you don't know about Halliburton, uh, it is an American multinational corporation responsible for most of the world's hydraulic fracturing fracturing operations it operates today in 90 i'm sorry 70 countries and makes over 23 billion dollars a year that's what howard hughes's dad sold his invention to was halliburton yep i am yeah the original company was found by earl halliburton who's from tennessee he started the company in 1919 so our boy richard was about 19 when his cousin founded this company but his the Halliburtons were already wealthy. Rich, so. yeah. If you I were mean, doing that kind of work back in the day, you already had money. Yeah. Uh, Richard's parents were Wesley and Nell. His dad was a civil engineer and a real estate speculator. And the couple had another son, Wesley Jr., in 1903. And even though they weren't, you know, but three years apart, they were never really that close, the brothers. So... Um, We're not going to worry about Wesley too much. And apparently Richard didn't either. Richard (laughs) attended the, um, they did move to Memphis uh, when the boys were little. Richard attended the Memphis University School, which is like a private school for boys, where he played the violin and golf and tennis. And he was good in geography and history. He was a nerd. Yes, a a nerd who loved rich boy stuff. And that Um, school is still around in Memphis. And I interviewed for a job there when I was out of college. Oh, wow. Uh, fun fact, when Richard was 15, he developed a rapid heartbeat and had to spend a few months in bed, which can I just say, I have the same thing. So why can't I spend all my time in bed? Like I, I am waiting to be sent to the coast for my health. I know (laughs) I'm ticked off that this is not a thing, but I wouldn't want to go where he went. He spent some of those months at at the Battle Creek Sanitarium in Michigan, which, as we all know, was run by John Harvey Kellogg. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The Looney Tune who invented Kellogg's cereals. With his brother, um, yeah, yeah, they they were Looney Tunes. Um, they had he some, was a eugenicist. Yeah, they had some interesting views and on... anti-masturbating. Yes, I was going to say <laughs> very anti-sex views, and that's everything. why I love graham crackers. And then in college, <laughs> I, I learned they were to prevent masturbation, and I was yep. just like, well, it, shit, it, it does not prevent that. So no. <laughs> Give um, me yeah. a couple s'mores. I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah, amen. Um, I don't know that enough research has been done into the fact that s'mores are aphrodisiacs, but whatever. Um, <laughs> but it, there are so many fascinating podcasts about John Harvey, Harvey Kellogg. I recommend looking them up. Like, I think stuff he missed in history class covered him probably the dollop i can't remember but anyway he's he's fascinating so R- richard spent some time hanging out with him 
in Michigan, but then he got well and he came back down. So he comes back to Memphis. And in 1917, his brother, uh, Wesley Jr. died suddenly of rheumatic fever at the age of 14 because that happened back then. And I guess he didn't care much about it. Um, that's just, <laughs> I don't know. I, everything I saw was like, they were not close. And I'm like, okay, weird. Uh, so anyway, Richard goes on to college. Uh, he went to Princeton because, of course, he did, where he was the editor of the Princetonian Pictorial Magazine and was on the editorial board of the Daily Princetonian. Of course so, he was. Fancy pants. Now, he left Princeton temporarily in 1919 to become an ordinary seaman on a ship that went from <laughs> New Orleans to England. Um, this Sorry. was... No, I expected it. I expected y'all to giggle. Well, you expected it from Hannah. No, I expected it from both of you. That's okay. And and the the fun thing about this was this was sort of a spur of the moment runaway with the circus type of decision, and because he was just like, I just I want to go on an adventure, and so he just goes and joins this ship's crew, and he realizes pretty quickly this is work. Like, this is sort of real life knocking him on the head, like, hey, I'm going to have to right. actually do work. So when the ship stopped in Virginia, his parents were vacationing there at their vacation home, because of course they were. And his mom was like, no, sir, you signed up to do this whole journey. You you need to <laughs> be We're not calling mama. Get no, in here. <laughs> I know. I was like, sir, seriously, like, stop being a mama's boy. Like, you said you <laughs> would do it. So he's like, okay, I will, you know complete my commitment to these people men do not change i'm telling you <laughs> uh so he ends up going to london and paris on this trip and he toured the cities and absolutely loved it he he loved going overseas he ended up just really loving traveling so this is really where his love of travel comes from and while he was still in college, he started writing some travel pieces for Field and Stream magazine, which paid him a little over $150 per article. That's over 2000 in today's money. And I'm like, I bet y'all don't pay 2000 for pieces. No. Whatever. He also began giving lectures about traveling. And I read that although he had a high-pitched voice and, quote, an occasional discomfort on the details, end quote, he was a great speaker, and he became a very popular popular lecturer. His motto became "Seize the day," which is okay, <laughs> okay. Um, and he was inspired by the works of Oscar Wilde, especially all of Wilde's work that encouraged readers to experience the moment before it vanished, which is excellent advice. I will say. Was he inspired by the gay sex as well? <laughs> Probably. How did you know? That's what I'm getting to. Therefore, Richard was like, I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to have kids. I'm never going to have a regular job or look for any kind of conventional respectability, which I love because I've kind of done the same thing. Like, I mean, I have the nine to five, but like, right. I never really wanted to get married or have kids or Yay. I don't want to climb the corporate ladder. I don't need some fancy title. Like, same I just, here. Yeah. I just wanted to just do whatever I felt like doing. But I think Richard felt this way. Yes, because Oscar Wilde sort of put the idea in his head a little but also Richard's gay um so he probably knew this this typical get married have kids lifestyle was wasn't just not gonna for work him, for him. especially well, not for those days certainly makes the ordinary semen thing even funnier yeah <laughs> I know uh he did date ladies when he was younger but um, I, I wonder if that was just to kind of assimilate and just do what everyone else. Was yeah. Doing. Stay out of everyone's. I, also, yeah. I shouldn't speculate because I don't. Well, and a lot of times business. they'll do it to like 
try to be normal you yeah, know yeah. like okay let me just see you know yeah yeah um but anyway richard just decided he wanted to explore the world and make a living by writing about his adventures his Love dad it. was like no no you're grow up come back to memphis get a job and adjust his life to quote an even tenor oh. and richard basically Go said get on wesley's shit let richard do what he's gonna do wesley's dead oh fuck how did i miss that God damn it okay well all right i can see his dad's point a little bit yeah so richard's like not no but hell no and this is his quote about that and i love this quote so much he said i hated that expression the whole and even tenor thing yeah as far as i'm able to intend to avoid as far as I am able, I intend to avoid that condition. When impulse and spontaneity fail to make my way uneven, then I shall sit up nights inventing means of making my life as conglomerate and vivid as possible. And when it comes my time to die, I'll be able to die happy, for I will have done and seen and heard and experienced all the joy, the pain, the thrills, any emotion that any human ever had, and I'll be especially happy if I'm spared a stupid common death in bed hell yeah Yeah. and this dear listener is what we call foreshadowing (laughs) oh Oh, dear i love him for that i love him for that but yeah so as soon as he graduates college he's like stay fresh cheese bags and he takes off (laughs) so he goes to china in 1922 oh hell yeah yeah, he witnessed the last ceremonial marriage of a Chinese emperor, which was a big deal because the royal family was permanently expelled two years later. So this was like a big historic moment he witnessed. And he wrote his first book, A Royal Road to Romance, in 1925. Ooh. I kind of wish someone would turn that into like a fictional romance novel. I would mm-hmm. read the crap out of that. Um, in 1927, he published The Glorious Adventure, in which he retraced Ulysses' ev- adventures through the classical Greek world, as Ooh. recounted in The Odyssey by Homer. Oh. He also wrote about visiting the grave of British poet Rupert Brooks. Uh, he loved Rupert Brooks, and he planned to write a biography of him, which he never got to do, but he wrote a lot of notes, and that the, his notes were later um, turned into a biography written by someone else. So he did kind of help do that anyway in 1929 he published new worlds to conquer which recounted his adventures in mexico and swimming in the panama canal now the year before so this is where the stories come from he swam the panama canal which is 51 miles i didn't know this so this was kind of fun to learn but ships traveling in the panama canal back then and today must pay a toll the toll is based on the type of ship and the size and its cargo. I read that today the average toll is $54,000. <laughs> the most expensive toll ever in the history of the Panama Jesus. Canal is 375000 Jesus Christ. But Richard's just a dude. He's just swimming the Panama Canal. And this I was 1928. 28. So his poll was the lowest in Panama Canal's history. 36 cents. <laughs> oh, good for him just over six dollars in today's money i think that's kind of adorable yeah anyway, by this time richard's becoming famous because hey he's writing he's going on all of these amazing trips he's writing about it he is giving speeches and lectures and he is becoming friends with a lot of fancy movers and shakers and movie stars and painters and musicians and politicians 
he was probably the most famous Memphian at the time in the world, which I think is kind of cool. Like if you think about him, like he was kind of the Elvis of the twenties and thirties. Mm-hmm. Um, some of his favorite movie stars that he got to be close with include the hot and Latin lover, Ramon Navarro, who I covered. Yes, in our yes. And they, uh, they got, they got pretty close if you get what I'm saying. They, they Hell, oh, I bet that I'm was like, hot. I bet that was super hot. He I mean, also, was this guy hot? Yeah, yeah, he's a good looking guy. Okay, yeah. hell there's yeah. some pictures where he looks kind of like a basic generic white man, but there's other ones where he just looks very dashing. Why isn't this a movie? I know, I don't know why. I don't know I want why, a movie. Truly. I know, same. Where's there's my also, gay cinema? I know. <laughs> Um, it, it's sad really, because I, to get out of the story for one second, I was doing research on the cemetery where he's buried. Well, he's not buried, but where right. there's a marker here in Memphis. And it said he was an explorer and author. And I'm like, he, a what from Memphis? And so I read right. about him months ago. And so he's been on my mind all this time to eventually cover. And I, I was like, it's so interesting that this guy was so famous and I've never heard of him. And then in every story I read about him, everyone was like, he was huge, hugely famous in the 20s and 30s. And no one knows who he is today at all. It's true. I don't. Never heard of this man. I mean, other than the Halliburton last name, and I sure wouldn't have thought. Right. I I, just thought it's some asshole you know rich rich guy. people mm-hmm. and I, I assumed they were from up north or dc or something that's what i, I thought know. too i didn't think they were from tennessee they were from tennessee so anyway he was also good friends but he didn't date as far as i know douglas fairbanks senior who is a very well-known very well-respected actor and he was a world traveler too um but i will stop and say here yes he was writing all these books and going to all these places and writing about it his writing was very romantic and very kind of purple prosy um, love it i don't know that he was like doing anything for science it was like oh i'm going to say the most beautiful wordy things about the rest of the world and, right. and he admitted he's like i'm writing for he was the a general dandy public. yeah he was like i'm writing for the general public the general public ate it up i mean they loved him and like when he died like Ernest Hemingway and people like that like made fun of him. They were like, "Oh, he was just a ladies' home journal explorer." Oh, fuck like, off, Ernest! You were just a drunk. I know. I was like, okay, sour grapes, much anyway. Um, and a lot of his writing, but I say all that to say, a lot of his writing. I mean, this is a very privileged, wealthy white guy, right? That's who would have been 30s. able to do that back it's then. Who was able to do it? And yes, his views and and some of his writing yes it's problematic today it does not translate because people are different different yeah people are different um i don't get the impression he was trying to be a terrible person um i think it's just he was a product of the white supremacist society that he was was, honestly still is you know he was just reflecting what he was in yeah, and and people were really into these romantic stories of escapism and fun and drama and romance, and he he played toward the general public, and it made him rich. Now, like all of our other explorers, they said as much money as he made, he never seemed to keep it. Like he was awful with money, which surprises me as a Capricorn. <laughs> I love but, it. <laughs> um, so I think that's kind of funny. Like, oh, you're so popular and all this but you cannot keep a dollar in your pocket my dude you've got to budget that was like grizzly homeboy yeah. went through feasts and famines i'm like uh, yeah. get yeah. it together so yeah so i just want to say i'm i'm 
I'm not trying to make this story be like, wow, he's so cool. Like, no, I realize he's problematic, but oh Lord, he wasn't back in. But he had an interesting story nonetheless. He did. He did. All right. So in 1930, he hired a um, pioneer aviator, Moy Stevens, to fly him around the world in an open cockpit cockpit by plane. (laughs) Well, you know, it sounded to me like you just from said, the semen to the cockpit. His, his, his name was Moist Evans. I know, I heard I'm that so too. Sorry. <laughs> Moist Evans. I was like, this is too much for one sentence. I can't do this. I did not mean to wake up on this beautiful Sunday morning and just be <laughs> on the on Lord's this Day. <laughs> Moy M O Y E. That is his first name, which I think is uncomfortable. It's probably anyway, a Jewish name, maybe. Well, then and if then you say it Stevens. fast. Moist Steven. Yes. It, okay. I see. I hear it. Dang it. Well, listen, these two men were going to fly around the world in an open cockpit. I bet plane, they were. Which I'm like, please, Moist Stevens, don't ever regular put semen. me in. True. But don't ever put me in an open cockpit. Like, no, no, that's not going to happen. No now, way. to cross the oceans, they they put the plane on a ship, but otherwise they flew. <laughs> Hey, the, that counts. That's a ferry. What are you going to do? Does. You're technically going around the world. The fl- uh, plane was named the Flying Carpet. Oh, that's cute. That's okay. Cute. I'll let and you have that. The pair took off on Christmas Day, 1930. It took 18 months. They visited 34 countries. Um, in Nepal, they flew pla- uh, plast- past Mount Everest, and Richard stood up in the cockpit to take the first aerial photo of the mountain. Damn. That's cool. That's fucking neat. You know how I would pee my britches if that was me. I, I would, would be like, shit like, myself. No way. Yes. No way. Um, so on this trip, they they did a lot of cool stuff, met a lot of cool people. They were the first Americans to fly over the Philippines, yada, yada, yada. He wrote a book about the journey called The Flying Carpet, and it was published in 1932. In 1934, he began writing weekly travel stories for a newspaper syndicate, and he started making radio show appearances. He was still partying with celebrities. Uh, His next big adventure, he wanted to fulfill his dream to emulate Hannibal. God, this is a Hannibal-heavy episode. (laughs) By crossing the Alps on an elephant. So he rode an elephant from Paris named Miss Dalrymple. (laughs) going from switzerland to italy and the next year he published seven league boots considered the last of the great um travel books of this time period that sounds like fun though kind of does i mean i just hope the elephant was respected and taken right yeah um, in 1937, architect William Alexander Levy designed a house for Richard and his boyfriend, Paul Mooney, Ooh. in Laguna, Bo- Laguna Beach, California. Paul is a cutie patootie. Um, he was um, Richard's, like, editor and and helped him write stuff. And also, it seemed like they were a really good match. If you look at their find a grape, they're listed as each other's spouses, but they weren't of course legally right back then but i don't know that they ever like did any kind of ceremony but that's so sweet they just lived together in, as a couple for all intents and purposes they were each other's you know partner so yeah oh um but this house is like a a big deal it's still there in laguna beach it's um huge i think it was literally hanging like on a hillside and so they nicknamed it the hangover house yeah because it's <laughs> hanging over um it's still there and it sounds like it's kind of in disrepair from what i read let's um, buy it 
but they <laughs> ha- okay they had hangover house like written on the side of the house and then How it cute. includes because of course it does a wall-sized map of the world <gasps> which that's sounds so neat. cute sounds neat now in the late 1930s richard's fame was falling he was not a complete like d-lister but he wasn't as famous as he was so to renew interest in himself and to keep selling books he planned a big trip in 1938 he planned to sail a chinese junk which is a type of chinese sailing ship with okay patent sails but it's called a junk i don't know why i don't interesting like that, it's weird whatever it's not for me to like or dislike He wanted to sail this Chinese junk across the Pacific Ocean from Hong Kong to San Francisco, where the World's Fair was happening. The plan was the trip would last three months, and then in San Francisco, once it arrived at the World's Fair, it would take passengers on little cruises around the San Francisco Bay. Sounds great, right? So he looked at junks in China, and he thought they were all too expensive, or they weren't, you know, in good enough shape to cross the Pacific, which is huge. Okay. So he decides to build his own. Oh, Lord. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is not going to go well, my friends. Oh, dear. It took less than six weeks to build the ship, and the whole construction was just a disaster. I don't know that I trust that. No. It, there were delays. They blew the budget completely. There six weeks seems kinds, like not long enough. <laughs> not long enough. There were all kinds of engineering ed, um, errors. And then two, the ship was being built in China and China was having some issues with Japan. Uh, yeah. So they were trying to fight each other and have this little war. And meanwhile, he's like, hey, these Chinese men, please make the ship. And they're kind of like, we're kind of getting killed right now. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just it's 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 none of it is is going well and then richard's having trouble getting funding he asked buick to sponsor this trip but they didn't want to be associated with anything called a junk (laughs) touche which i think is kind of funny anyway his very wealthy friends and family paid for it so it's all fine whatever so they called the ship the Sea Dragon, and it featured this colorful dragon on the on the stern. It looks really cool. I found a picture of it. Um, but they decided to go out on this initial run in 1939, and the Sea Dragon showed its true colors. It Uh-oh. failed miserably. Uh, it was not ready to go across the uh, Pacific Ocean. So they come back, they make some changes, and they try again. Um, so not only was that going wrong with the ship itself, but all of the different uh sailors on the trip which some of them were some of his wealthy friends who paid to go on the trip some of these were just crew members from china all of them were various levels of sick um, some people had dysentery some people you know whatever richard's boyfriend paul broke his ankle like jesus was just, everything was going wrong but and frankly um, any disease that causes me to shit myself to death yeah no i don't want to no. have it all i definitely don't want to have it on a boat i don't want to have it on the pacific ocean no because that just that that ocean absolutely not monstrously huge i don't know if it is but it seems like it to me i know i've never traveled much but hey that's what you get when you're a poor girl from mississippi anyway (laughs) so the ship officially left on march 4th 1939 it was supposed to be like like here we go this is the trip we're doing it first few weeks were fine but on march 23rd the ship headed into a typhoon Oh, dear. Mm. The nearest ship was 400 miles away, and it was trying to get to the Sea Dragon, but they were in 
rough waters too. So it's it's not looking good. And at first, the captain for the Sea Dragon sent a funny message to this other ship. And the message said, having a wonderful time. Wish you were here instead of me, <laughs> which I kind of appreciate. But then the second message was much more serious. They complained about the weather. They shared their location and their speed. And it also said, all well, when closer, may we avail your, ourselves of your direction finder. And that was the last message sent out by the Sea Dragon. Hmm. Now, of course, at first, the Coast Guard assumed that the Sea Dragon was not lost. And they assumed that this was a publicity stunt <gasps> oh, designed no. and staged oh, no. by Richard Halliburton. And oh. so they didn't go looking for it. Even though that's oh. the last message sent out even though everyone else was like dude I, th- I think they're lost like we need to go look for them the coast guard the coast was like, like fuck oh, them this is just richard being richard because he's a kind of dramatic in that way um he he did do a lot of publicity stunts and a lot of people now kind of say oh he probably embellished his travels and didn't really do some of the stuff he said he did but i'm like whatever it's old books so i don't know right i mean he's not out here you're supposed to lie in those. It's fine. I know. Yeah. I, I wouldn't worry about it. Anyway, they were supposed to make a stop at some island on April 3rd, and they, of course, did not show up. And after a week, his friends and family finally was like, y'all, seriously, go look for them. So the Coast Guard and the Navy sent out search vessels and airplanes, but they found no trace of the ship at all. Oh. Um, they. Some people have said that over the years they found bits and pieces, they think. But nothing really has ever definitively been said that this is a part of the Sea Dragon. So by June, this was, like I said, late March, early April. By June, Richard's mother was convinced he was gone and they, they'd never find him alive. So the Sea Dragon, Richard and the Sea Dragon's entire crew were all eventually declared dead, including his boyfriend, Paul, who was 34 when this Aww. happened. And Richard was just 39. Jeez. Richard man. Halliburton was officially declared dead on October 5th, 1939. Um, but I mentioned earlier, he has a cenotaph at Forest Hill Memorial or Forest Hill Cemetery in Midtown Memphis, along with his parents and brother. His brother had obviously already passed, but his parents did not pass. Um, they, they lost both their boys oh. and they passed later. Um, I do think this was kind of sweet though. Um, Richard wrote constantly. I mean, he was writing, I did not mention all of his books by any stretch of the imagination. And he sent literally a thousand letters to his parents alone. So there's no telling how many letters he sent to fans and friends and editors and all these kind of people. So he, he always was writing, but his Aww. father, Wesley compiled some of the letters he wrote to his parents into a book called Richard Halliburton, his story of his life's adventure as told to his mother and father. Aww. And that came out in 1940. Um, so yeah, like I said, he has a cenotaph. Um, it's very simple. It has his name, has his years, because of course they, they're not exactly sure what day he died on. Right. And it says lost at sea. Um, Forest Hill Cemetery in Memphis is just a really fascinating cemetery. That was, I mentioned it in a previous episode, the episode about, um, I think it was spontaneous memorials. It was the episode where I covered Elvis's passing. Um, yeah. So Forest Hill is where Elvis's mother Gladys was initially buried and Elvis too, until they eventually moved them both to Graceland. Elvis's bass player, Bill Black is also buried there. Bill Black, who was part of the original 
Blue Moon Boys. It was Elvis, Scotty, and Bill. Mm -hmm. He died in 1965 of a brain tumor when he was just 39. And he's out there. And then Charles Wilson, who followed, who founded Holiday Inn Hotels in Memphis. Oh, cool. He is buried there. His monument has the Holiday Inn logo, which Love is it. adorable. Branding. Um, I know. And then R&B artist Quinn Golden is out there, too. It's just, it's a really cool cemetery. Um, anyway, so let's talk about his legacy a bit. I'm, I promise I'm wrapping up. <laughs> about 25 years after Richard died, his father donated $400,000 for a bell tower to be built at Rhodes College in Memphis. It was dedicated in 1962 as the Richard Halliburton Memorial Tower. And then his dad passed away the next year at the age of 95. Damn. So both boys, I think, would have lived a long life had they right. not got not, a fever. Or, yeah. Gone out to sea in a really shoddy boat. Yeah. Uh, the World War II Liberty ship, the SS Halliburton, Richard Halliburton, was obviously named in his honor. Oh. Um, I cannot find any kind of cenotaph or marker or anything for Paul. And that kind of breaks my heart. Aww. I wish there was something for him. Um, but rumor has it that Richard Halliburton haunts his former home, the Hangover House in Laguna Ooh, Beach. We are so, definitely buying this house. I'm, I'm here for it. I say we go get this Hangover House that's at the edge of a cliff. We can live in California. We'll have a great time. Hopefully we don't fall in. You know what? If that's how I go, that's how I go. <laughs> okay, I'm <laughs> it's here whatever. for Whatever. I am going to close out with two quotes because, of course, I am. One of them is from publisher James O'Reilly, who reissued The Royal Road to Romance in uh, celebration of what would have been Richard's 100th birthday. He okay. said, from, from the Jazz Age through the Great Depression to the eve of World War II, he thrilled an entire generation of readers he was clever resourceful undaunted cheerful in the face of dreadful odds ever optimistic about the world and the people around him always scheming about his next adventure Aww. and then this is a quote from richard's book the glorious adventure we all have our dreams otherwise what a dark and stagnant world this would be lord byron once once wrote that he would rather have swum the hell spot than written all of his poetry so would i Sometimes, once in a long, long while, sentimental dreams come true. Mine did, and it would be as colorful and satisfying as all my flights of fancy had imagined it would be. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Which he did swim the hell spot, or however you say that, too. What because is Of course, that? Lord Byron did it, so he had to do it, too. Well, yeah. Too. So that's a very dramatic, um, but very dreamy Richard Halliburton, who, like I said. I love it. I... And he just, I wish I could have hung out with him and heard some of his stories, even if he made half He of sounds like yeah. a gas. I mean, yeah. yeah. But yeah, you know, he's a, he's a if you're going to make it up, you know, entertaining, it's fine. I know. I know. And I'm like, I hate people who want to complain about people who are clearly making a grab for, I don't want to say the lowest common denominator, but I mean, the general public. Like, what's wrong with that? Like, you know, like he made all this travel accessible to people right. who would never have the opportunity to go. Right. So, Especially like in a time like this where it's just, that's not going to happen. Yeah, exactly. So I just, I don't know. He seems like a cool guy. Yeah. So yeah, so Love that's it. Richard Halliburton. If you want to say hello to Halliburton family, you can see him here in Memphis. at the. I had no idea they were from Memphis. That's mm -hmm. insane. I know. Hello, McDuff. He's ready for me to stop talking and cuddle. Like, yeah. Mother. <laughs> Mother. 
All right. It's so, snuggle time. Yes. <laughs> He's already gotten a lot of snuggle time this morning, but he wants more. That's um, mine. Next week, we are going to cover comedians. Yeah. So get ready to laugh. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, Lou Who, where can people find us online? We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cemetery Row Pod, or you can send us an email to cemeteryrowpod at gmail.com. And I want to thank. Um, Devin sent us a message and the other gal who gave us a wonderful, fun suggestion for, hang on, I have to find it because I want to make sure to give you guys shout outs. I remember you told us what it was. Yes. I've forgotten because I'm terrible. Devin uh, gave us, um, sent us some pictures of some really cool um, uh, memorials and then Stephanie um, who is going to be doing some really cool shit at the Field Museum uh, this October nice. um, and wants us to do vampires. So Ooh, it is yes, definitely yes. on our list, Miss Stephanie. And thank yes. you for the suggestion. We will do vampires, I guess, closer to Halloween. Yeah. Oh, yes. Good idea. Good idea. Um, by the way, um, I know we say we're on Twitter, but <laughs> TBH, I have not posted on there in a while. Yeah. Nah. We're um, on facebook and, and insta and, mostly yeah and we haven't joined threads or whatever mostly because we I have don't. a tiktok that we haven't really done anything with we're just kind of squatting on so yeah i didn't know that yeah he yeah. Just set it up so nobody else could steal uh yeah we well, it's almost that. like i do this for a living <laughs> well, see i do this for a living and literally my boss is like have you joined threads yet and i wrote no. back and i was like i have no desire to be on any more social media than i have to be and he just hasn't said anything else since and i I'm love like, it sorry i know i'm being right. a bad social i mean media come manager, on but no i'm Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. no i'm like, tired of social media. i have us on there for work and so yeah. like and then i have it like personally i've posted maybe two things i mostly just like to doom scroll so yeah yeah well the world is is good for that yeah. yes so anyway um yeah thanks for hanging out with us please leave us a review please tell your yes. friends about us um send us your ideas yeah if there's anything you want us to cover yeah. um because that's the thing too is that you know every local cemetery has its own fascinating stories oh absolutely and- the best ones we probably don't know about because no one has made a listicle about it yet. Or yeah. You say that. Right. Absolutely. So tell us about your awesome local graves. Um, we will cover them or we'll read your letter or whatever. Um, it, it'll be rad. Yeah. yeah. And we're thinking about, um, because a f- friend of mine who I had like name checked before she listened to the podcast and she thought <laughs> it was hysterical. Um, if you have like hometown hauntings or ghost yes. stories, we're really thinking about doing that for the spooky season. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Like listener stories or whatever. So send them in. We would yes. love to yep. read them. Yeah. I'm all for anything spooky. Y'all know. Cause me. I desperately we want to do spooky. another we are creepy stories. Spooky. I yeah. just found a shirt that I have to have y'all just. FYI. Okay. It is a ghost wearing a cowboy hat and cowboy boots. And it says boots scooting spooky. <laughs> oh my god i need it anything more in my life send me the link no i'm not going to because (gasps) here well listen let me explain i'm listening i was scrolling through the facebook last night after my ghost tour and it comes up and i'm like oh my god i have to have that that'd be perfect for my ghost tour because i always try to wear something spooky for my ghost tour right and a horror movie shirt or something whatever 
And it was from a website on the Facebook called Hold Topic. And I'm like, no, no. Because at first I thought it was from Hot Topic. And I'm like, okay, sure. Because I mean, I probably have points and hot cash and all that because yes right. you shop at hot topic judge me i, I do too care. i don't care i love hot topic anyway um i remember when it was like a true like goth store back in the <laughs> yes. now it's a lot where of disney got, stuff it's where i got my goth prom dress for prom in 2001 so that's how old i am for one for two um they used to seriously be goth and like a little scary my mom uh, yeah with me anyway yeah it didn't sell disney crap anyway sorry i'm not a big disney person me um, either but yeah so it said it was you could buy it from some place called hold topic and i'm like ah, that sounds <laughs> hella sus right so right? i googled boot scoot and spooky and like 500 different makers on etsy have made the exact same design okay i don't know who made the original i would love to find who designed that original design and purchase from them since they clearly have had their ideas stolen repeatedly if you're the original designer contact us we will buy your shit because i i mean i don't want to just buy from some rando who stole someone's idea that's not cool anyway it does um, remind me of in college when you went to go interview somebody important and you had the Silence of the Lambs t-shirt on. Oh, yeah. Lotion. <laughs> puts yeah. lotion on that, I love yeah. that, that shirt. Yes, that was a good, I forgot about that shirt. That was fun. Yeah, yeah I have so many um, horror movie shirts now because I give ghost tours. And someone was recently like, hey, maybe you should apply for this job that's like in an office five days a week. And I'm like, no, I would have to quit wearing all of my shirts because, I mean, I work from home now. So even yeah. if I'm on Zoom, I'm still wearing my horror movie. Oh, yeah. exactly. Uh, and my clients have learned this. They don't care. So they're like, yeah, I will never go back to business casual. Never. They can, they can. I cleaned out my business casual closet. It is empty. Like You're I not getting me back in slacks, nope. people. It's no. not happening. Absolutely not. Khakis. No. If I wear jeans, I'm dressed up. Dude, I just <laughs> bought two pairs of jeans and I'm like, these are my nice pants. Exactly. <laughs> okay. okay. We have gone way off topic. I'm sorry. If you're still here, we love you. Thank you for listening. Um, okay. but We'll see you next week. Yes. Comedian Bye. Jay. Bye. Bye. <laughs>